Hey everyone, and welcome back to the CBIS Show. I'm your host, Colin Bish. Welcome everyone to episode six of the CBIS Show. Uh, if you, if any of you guys listened to episode five, you caught my disclaimer. I do apologize because I do, I do believe I called it episode six. Um, that was my mistake. Uh, it was like twelve o'clock when I, twelve o'clock in the morning when I was recording that. Um, kind of sucked. It's not when I wanted to record it, but I work with what I got. Um, and I want to get into the episode because there's a lot to talk about. I've got there's been a ton of developments in the conference finals in both the um, NBA and NHL. There was a there's a big NFL headline. There's a lot of stuff, right? But I do want to mention one thing before I get into this episode, and that one thing is no, I'm not giving thanks. Although thank you all to for the continued support. It's still, it still is crazy the support I've been getting. You know um from everybody but i just want to say that um and this part's very important that likely going forward i'm going to dwindle down my number of episodes from two a week to one a week and there's a couple reasons for that the first reason being the level of content that i'm left with during the summer right so eventually the nba finals will conclude we'll have a champion and the season will end same thing with Stanley Cup. That'll conclude. We'll have a champion. The season will end. Um, baseball's still going to go strong, but we're not going to get NFL. But you know, and we're going to have NFL training camps and all that, which is going to be big. And then you know, and football start back up in August. But in the June to July span, and even right now, it's just like this very fit thin level of content, right? Very thin, and I'm still gonna come out with you know content ideas for you guys, and I got a lot of ideas in my head, but I think it's just smart, you know, to just do uh to just do one a week to um com to basically accommodate with the level of content, the sports content going on now. So, um, obviously, sports combat's gonna be a big thing as well. There's gonna be UFC 289 in June, 290 in Ju- 290, 291 in July, and then 292 in August. It's gonna be that. It's gonna be boxing bouts, and I'm gonna talk about big boxing bout coming up in July. In this episode, there's still gonna be baseball, but I think just right now it's just smart to just go with the content that I've got right now and just level it to one a week. And the second reason as to why I'm uh, going from two episodes a week to one a week is more of a personal thing. And I'm not going to make this like a long thing um, because, you know, like I'm not trying to like create a sob story. I'm just being honest right now. Um, Oh, since I've gotten back from school in uh, like early mid-May, I've been dealing with a lot of weird stuff that has to do with a lack of energy. And I'm not lack of energy, lack of motivation, lack of discipline. It's been really strange, and I'm not sure what it is specifically, but you know, it's just been weird. And the podcast, you know, having to prepare scripts to, uh, for two episodes a week in such a short amount of time, and it, it, it's it, it in having to record. It's it, it, I just don't like it because like you know. I'm still 19. I kind of want to, you know, go out and do other things. But I still I still want to do this, right? But it just feels like when I have two a week and I'm trying to prepare scripts and I'm trying to record and trying to get it out to you guys, it feels like a job. And that's not what I want it to feel like. Because while jobs are enjoyable, uh, this is this is I don't see this as a job. I see this as a passion, you know? 
Um, so probably going to, that's another reason. It's just like, you know, I want to enjoy this. I want to really enjoy this, but having to prepare scripts, you know, big scripts twice a week and having to record, it just takes away from a lot of what I want to do. You know, you know, maybe I'll just want to chill and game. Um, some days I'll go out on a walk and just enjoy you know, time with family or nature or, you know, go to the gym. But uh, having to prepare two episodes a week has really, it's not been good. It's just like, if it feels like it's taken a lot away from me, a lot of stuff that I just want to do. So because of those reasons, I'm going to be going from two episodes a week to just one. I think it'll benefit me. Uh, of course, you know, it might not benefit you guys, you know, it may or may not, I, I don't know. Um, but I think it's just, you know, for me right now, it's probably the most beneficial, um, it's probably the most beneficial thing to do with this podcast more, more than likely. Uh, and as for when the two episodes will return, likely going to be when the NFL season comes back. So, I have a blueprint for that already. Uh, I won't. I'll, I'll explain it when we get closer to that. But just want to let you guys know that I'm going from two episodes to one, and then when NFL comes back, I'm probably gonna go back up to two. It, it might be a little bit harder having to deal with that, and um, you know, obviously going back to school. But I think I can manage. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to like you know during this summer. I really want to focus on learning time management and being able to manage my time correctly and effectively so I could also so I could excel in school and also get out two episodes a week to you guys. So there'll be that, but as for right now, it's going to be one episode a week from here on out. With that all being said, let's jump right into this. So the first big headline I want to talk about is DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, he was released after three years with the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, this coming season, he had a massive $31 million cap hit. And with D-Hop being released, they ha the uh, Cardinals ha have now like $22, 23000000 in dead cap space. And I, I just, you know, I think this is a failure on the Cardinals part. I really think it is because I was really high on them trading D-Hop. Did I think it was good? For because no, like, you know, D-Hop's D -Hop's a great player. I think it would have been smart to keep him around. But... With the trajectory the Cardinals were going in, he didn't like what was going on, so he's like, I want out. And in this case, why would you not trade him and at least get some value? Now you cut him, now you get nothing but dead cap space. You don't get anything from this. And this, it just, like, their hands are tied, yes. You know, if they couldn't find a deal and, you know, D-Hop still wants out, like, you know, they have no choice. But it really, really, it really doesn't make sense you know, that nobody can find a trade for DeAndre Hopkins. Nobody wants to trade. Because the amount of teams that could need a, that could use a player like DeAndre Hopkins is crazy. And I'll get into my five teams that I think could really use him. Uh, or not really teams that could use him, but teams that would definitely benefit from him. But, you know, like, it was evident that D-Hop did not want to be with the Cardinals anymore. He skipped uh, uh, voluntary... Uh, um, organized team activities this past month according to him he was working out in toronto but it was just obvious that he did not want to be with the Cardinals anymore with how they were trying to rebuild their franchise and trying to revitalize it's just not where they wanted to go and that's so shocking it's almost like uh it's almost like they would be in a constant rebuild with cliff kingsbury there and for those of you that don't know i think cliff kingsbury was a dumb hire 
I, I really think it was, I think it was a dumb hire by the Arizona Cardinals. But regardless of that, these are my best fits. Not best fits, but these are the teams I think will likely go after D-Hop and will likely be his strongest suitors. Starting off with the Buffalo Bills. You know, the Bills have had issues this year with reliable pass catchers. I think it's been established pretty well that Gabe Davis is not good enough. Is not, well, not good enough, but not consistent enough to be a number two wide receiver on an NFL team. Uh, I just, I, and, you know, you add D-Hop to a team with Stephon Diggs and then Dalton Kincaid, who they took in the NFL draft. And Josh Allen, you know, he had a really rough season, marred by a lot of turnovers. You know, people, you know, I, I hope people aren't making the excuses that it's a lack of reliable pass catchers. Because to be honest with you, when I look at Josh Allen's season, I really think his turnover issues were because of him. Not so much because of the, uh, the weapons around him. However, his weapons could definitely could have been better, which is why they traded up to get Kincaid, who was the best pass-catching tight end in the NFL draft. And, you know, the adding D-Hop could really bring a whole other level of, you know, expertise in that wide receiver room for the Buffalo Bills. I think it would, it would 100% make sense for the Bills to try and pursue DeAndre Hopkins. Next up, I have the Kansas City Chiefs, you know. We saw how good Patrick Mahomes was this past season without having a top-tier wide receiver one. His wide receiver was like, you know, Juju Smith-Schuster. Not to knock on Juju at all, but, you know, there's at least 20 guys probably better than him as wide receiver ones. So I think that the best – so I think, you know, DeAndre Hopkins going to the Chiefs would be a really, really fun thing to see. Well, for Chiefs fans, that's so much for the NFL. You, we saw how good Patrick Mahomes was last season without a big wide receiver one after they traded Tyree Kill. They thought he was going to fall off a cliff. He only came back and, you know, won an MVP in the Super Bowl. I think he won a Super Bowl MVP. So, you know, that type of production, that type of player, um, without a big name wide receiver, you add D-Hop to that and put him alongside Kelsey, it could be really scary. And the, the, the repeat talks would surely be – um, would surely be loud this offseason. Next up, I have the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, I truly believe that the Ravens were the closest team to acquiring DeAndre Hopkins. Um, they, I, it was, I thought that they were going to trade for him during the draft or prior to, but it never materialized. Now that the card, now that the Ravens don't have anything to give up, they can go ahead and get, um, they can go ahead and get DeAndre Hopkins signed to a deal. I, I liked what the Ravens have done so far with their wide receiver cores this year, uh, or this offseason. They drafted Zay Flowers, which I, I liked a lot. Um, they also got Odell Beckham Jr., but are we really going to rely on those guys to be the game changers for uh, Lamar Jackson, who just recently re-signed? Is he really going to be the game changer? That's my question. I don't think they, like, all respect to those guys, but... OBJ's got a lot of questions coming off a torn ACL and a season where he didn't play. Zay Flowers, you know, he hasn't played in an NFL game yet, so we don't we don't know what we're going to see out of him. And outside of that, you know, Rashad Bateman is up and down. We're not we don't really know what to expect from him either. You you add DeAndre Hopkins to that squad, and it could be real scary for, um, you know, it could be really scary having OBJ, D Hop, and Zay Flowers on that team for Lamar Jackson to throw to. Next up, the final AFC team, I have got the New England Patriots. 
Uh, they've been rumored to go for D Hop for a long time, even when the trade talks first first came up. Uh, it was rumored that the New England Patriots were pri- were really wanting to get DeAndre Hopkins. However, never really went anywhere. Now that they don't have to give anything up, you know. You know, the, the basically the, the the thing is is like you know, like when D Hop was still with the Cardinals, they didn't have to give anything up. Now that he's available and they don't and he's not on a team, they don't have to give anything up. But I think getting um, DeAndre Hopkins would be a very big get for the New England Patriots because right now their wide receiver core is pretty thin. They don't really have any dynamic playmakers. They lost Jacoby Myers in free agency. They did get Juju, but you know the issue is th- th- this is a big season for Mac Jones. I think it is a big season because I I, I I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and and and, and I'll tell it. I'll just say look. This dude had Matt Patricia as his offensive coordinator. He was doomed to fail. Well, he wasn't doomed to fail, but he was definitely doomed to underachieve. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But regardless of that, most people aren't going to see it that way. Most people put the figure at Mac Jones. So, you know, you come to this season with Mac Jones, you know, questioning, you know, is he really the guy in New England? Um, along, you know, and then Bailey Zappi, who had those uh, few big games. Uh, Basically, this is a big season for Mac Jones. Why not make it a little easier on him and get a player like D-Hop? I think it would definitely make sense. And a sleeper team I would have that would pro- that would more than likely definitely want to bring D-Hop on board is the Chicago Bears. I think that the Chicago Bears right now are in a great position with what they did in the draft, with what they did with the first, with the first overall pick. Being able to acquire DJ Moore, I, I think it was a great offseason overall for the Bears. Um, and you add D-Hop to that receiving core, and it's kind of nasty. You've got DeAndre Hopkins, you got DJ Moore, Darnell Mooney, you know, Chase Claypool if you want to add him there, and, and Cole Komet. You, get, you can throw Cole Komet in there too. Cole Komet's pretty nice. But... You know, you add D-Hop to a receiving core with those guys. And Justin Fields, people are really questioning his passing ability. But, you know, like, you add, they've already added DJ Moore, which is great. They've got Darnell Mooney. they still got Chase Claypool and Cole Komet. You add D-Hop to that mix, and we could really see what Justin Fields could do as a passer this coming season. We already know what he can do as a runner. But what he could do as a passer has a potential to be insane. So, moving on to hockey. Uh, Matthew Kachuk played hero again for the Florida Panthers in Game 4, scoring with just five seconds to go to send the Florida Panthers to the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, uh, Florida, I I I keep thinking it's Carolina. It's the Florida Panthers. The Florida Panthers jumped out to early 2-0 lead behind Anthony Duclair and Matthew Kachuk. It was his first goal of the game. But the Canes, the Carolina Hurricanes, would cut the lead behind Paul Stastny. Then the Canes would tie it 2-2 behind Tuvo Teravainen. But the Panthers Panthers retook the lead via Ryan Lomberg to make a 3-2 going into the third period. The the Carolina Hurricanes would tie the game late in the third with Jesper Foss, but the Panthers cashed in on a late power play. As with just five seconds to go, as I said, Matthew Kachuk scored and sent Florida to their first Stanley Cup Finals since 1996, which I think was the first season that the Florida. I think that was the inaugural season of the Florida Panthers. I might be wrong, but that was when like that the 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 hat trick or like people throwing the mouses 
on the ice was like a huge thing. I don't, I, I, I don't remember exactly, but like that, that basically, it's this is a huge accomplishment for the Florida Panthers, and it shows you that just how big Matthew Kachuk is for the Florida Panthers. He scored the two OT goals in games one and two. He scored. I think he had an assist on a big goal or the game winning, or not the game winning goal, but the game ceiling goal, something like that. Um, in game three, and then he goes out five seconds to go on a power play, scores the game-winning goal for the Florida Panthers, sends them to the um, Stanley Cup Finals. And once again, Sergei Bobrovsky comes up big. He had 36 A's out of 39 shots on goal. I mean, as I'm looking at my Boston Bruins flag in the garage right now, like I still remember how mad I was and how much I hated the Florida Panthers um when they had beaten us but as the playoffs have gone on and as i've watched them more and more and seen what they've done the more and more i i I mean i still don't like them for what they did but the more and more i respect them like i really do respect them because they've shown that they're not just some simple wild card team that's gonna go they they're a they're a nasty rough team and that's a nightmare for anybody in the stanley cup you know whomever they face in the Stanley Cup Finals, whether that be the Vegas Golden Knights or the Dallas Stars. We'll get to that in just a second. But despite, you know, them being the eighth seed in the Stanley Cup Finals, the Florida Panthers have been just fantastic. Alex Leon got out to a bad start in the opening series against Boston. Then Bobrovsky comes in, he absolutely tears it up. Um, and then, obviously, you've got just a whole collection of great players. Brandon Montour, who's had an insane season, along with, you know, guys like Carter Verhage. And then, obviously, the uh, Hart Trophy finalist, Matthew Kachuk, who came up huge in so many, in so, so many games. It, well, not so, so many games um, in this series. But all four games, he came up huge for the Florida Panthers against Carolina Hurricanes. One of, and... Th- and I think I, I, uh, one of the things I marveled most at in the, in that series was the dominance of Sergei Bobrovsky. Carolina was one of the best offensive teams going into the Stanley Cup in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and time after time, Sergei Bobrovsky just swept the floor with them. Absolutely dominated. He he had a sh- I, I, he I think he allowed only three two goals in game one had a ton of he had six uh, yeah I'm, I'm remembering he had like sixty plus saves in game one then he had uh, only allowed one goal on thirty plus shots in game two then he had a shutout in game three and then in game four he saved thirty six of thirty nine shots on goal he's insane and he's been a huge huge part of this Florida Panthers run. Moving on to the uh, Western Conference, however, it started out with Vegas using a big three first period in Game Three, with them going one with and with that performance they would go one win away from the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, Vegas jumped out to a 3-0 lead in the first quarter behind Jonathan Marchessault, Ivan Barbashev, and William Carrier. The Knights added another goal off of Alex Petrangelo in the second period, and they would win four nothing behind Aiden Hill's 34-34 shot 34 of 34 shutout. They would take a 3-0 lead in that series. However, Dallas rattled off two big victories in both games 4 and 5 to extend the series versus Vegas. In game 4, the scoring began with William Carlson giving the Knights the lead, but Jason Robertson would tie the game. He's been fairly quiet 
in these playoffs, but in the past two games, in games four and five, he's come up big. Uh, Jonathan Marchessault regained the lead for Vegas, but Robertson once again scored to tie the game going into the third period. Uh, third period, no goals, but overtime would take place and end quickly after Joe Pavelski cashed in on a power play, won the game for the Stars. How, um, Aiden Hill had a great performance with 39 saves, but it was not enough for the Vegas Golden Knights. Going into Game 5, the Vegas Golden Knights were looking to end the series here and wait and move on to the Stanley Cup Finals uh, it, on their home ice. And it looked like they were and it looked like they were off to a good start as Ivan Barbashev gave Vegas the early lead. But Luke Lendening tied the game shortly thereafter. 1-1 going into the second period as Chandler Stevenson regained the lead for the Vegas Golden Knights before Jameson Robertson, it, with his third goal in two games, tied the game again for Dallas. The hero of the series so far for the Dallas Stars, Ty Delandria, came up huge for Dallas, scoring two consecutive goals to put the game out of reach for Vegas as the Stars would win 4-2 and extend the series. Game 6 tonight. This is, I mean, it looked like Dallas was dead in the water after being shut out in the uh, in Game 3. However, Jace, the, the key cog to the Stars this whole season has been Jason Robertson and as, and as I've said in as I just said um Robertson had come up um Robertson hadn't really come up big in many of the playoff series um <coughs> excuse me in the previous uh series against the Wild against the Kraken and hell even in the first three games he wasn't he wasn't really a big factor however two goals in game four would allow Dallas to win that game in overtime. I also got to give a shout out to Jake Ottinger because Jake Ottinger has been a lot better in these two uh, in games four and five than he has been in the first three games of the series. Um, but yeah, J again, Jason Robertson, you know, he's been the key guy for the stars in these past two games. Also give it, got to give a shout out to Ty Delandria. He, you know, those two goals, in um, game five were huge, and if the stars were if the stars are able to uh, come up big tonight, we could see a potential 3-0 comeback. Speaking of 3-0 comebacks, uh, start out with game four. It, moving over to basketball, game four as Boston saved off elimination, defeating the Miami Heat with the series on the line. Jason Tatum led all scores with 33 to give Boston a big win. Jimmy Butler scored 29 in that game, but just went 9 to 29 from the field. Bam had a bye on that game, and you know, in the games following games uh, four and or five and six was almost a non-factor. He only shot seven uh, shots from the field. He only notched 10 points, five boards. Gabe Vincent sprained his ankle in Game Four. He's not gonna. He did not play in Game Five. Kyle Lowry, I believe, got the start in Game Five. Then Grant Williams once again came up big for the Celtics. He hit four threes off the bench. Boston would take that back to um, TD Garden, picking up another big win to extend the series three-two. As Celtics used big twenty-plus point performances from from Jason Tatum, Mark Smart, Derek White, and Jalen Brown to send the series back to Miami. As they were down three two, and in Game Seven, which was a which was a nail biter, Celtics led 102-100 with uh, about you know uh, ten plus a uh, ten ish seconds to go. Jimmy Butler was fouled behind the arc. He would go to the three point. He would go to the foul line and make all three shots to give the Heat the lead. Um, Celtics called timeout, move the ball past half court, and 
once they inbounded, they were going for Marcus Smart for a three. However, Smart missed the shot, but right there was Derek White, who tipped in the miss with just a tenth of a second. Got the ball off with just .1 on the clock. Gave the Celtics a miraculous win. And the series is tied 3-3. Game 7 tonight. And, like, oh, man. What else What, what else do you want to say? And I'm going to say, like, what else do you, what can you say about this? Except, you know, you got to give the Celtics props for how they've been able to to extend this series. Kendrick Perkins, who I've been very critical of all my all the time, he's been a, um, a an analyst. I don't think he's very good. He did have a good take when he was talking about the Celtics after they had won games four and five. You know, the, it, it, you know he said something along the line. He said something like, "Why are we congratulating the Celtics for winning two games?" You know, uh, you know, kind of like preventing the inevitable in a way. It's only, you know, leave the congratulations if they actually tied the series and, you know, if they potentially win the series. It's just a good take. And now it's coming to fruition because this, the series is tied 3-3. This may be the first time in NBA history that, key, uh, that a team has come back down from 3-0 deficit. And I want to address this because people are acting like right now, right now people are acting like this is all the rest's fault. Because there's a big there's a big storyline that came out that NBA referee Eric Lewis was being investigated by the NBA for potentially having a burner account. So he's on his Kevin Durant arc, as we like as 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 us Gen Zers like to call it. He's on his Kevin Durant arc, so or, uh, basically he's on his whatever arc, something like that. But they're saying right now that they're investigating right now that. Eric Lewis, NBA referee, who I think is currently refing the um, the Celtics Heat series, uh, they're investigating him right now for potentially having a burner account on Twitter to defend the calls, to defend the referees in that series, and it's it kind of looks bad because right now he's follow because right now that specific burner account is following like the NBA ref the NBA ref like uh, account the NBA refs analytics account on Twitter and not only that people are really feeling as if that it is him and he is trying to defend himself because people because as Twitter does as Twitter loves to expose the hell out of people NBA Twitter went and found out that his family are huge Boston Celtics fans which is only adding fuel to the fire that this series may be rigged in favor in Boston However, I'll just say this, right? Jimmy Butler in games five and in games five and in games five and six went ten of thirty-one combined. In game, it, it Bam Adebayo in those same games went twelve of thirty-one. You add that up, and both players are twenty-two of sixty-two from the field in games five and six combined. Does do, so. Answer me this question: Does the do the rest play a part in that? I don't really think so. I I really don't think the rest play a part in that. Not only that, Jimmy Butler in game six in game six went like to the line twelve or fourteen times. One of those two. It's like, if 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 NBA fans or Heat fans are going to make excuses as to why, um, 
as to why they potentially lose a series. Potentially, no. Potentially lose the series. Don't point at the referees. Why not point at Jimmy Butler's poor performances in, game, in games five and six? Why not ha- look at how Bam has gone quiet ever, uh, ever since game three-ish? Like, why are we going to point? Like, and I'm not defending Eric Lewis in any way. If Eric Lewis actually had a burner account and he has something to do with potentially rigging this series, and, and mind you, he was also the same referee that was involved with uh, the no call against LeBron James when the Lakers and Celtics played earlier this year. Like, it's definitely not looking good for Eric Lewis. And if they do find him guilty of something, like, you know, ban him, suspend him, whatever, because that type of act, that those type of acts by referees are just no-nos. They are big no-nos, and they're disrespectful to the game. If he is found guilty, suspend him. But Eric Lewis and the referees are not responsible for Jimmy Butler going cold in game five and six. The referees are not responsible for Bam Adebayo being a non-factor offensively in games four, five, and six. It's 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 all just a... And the Heat players would tell you, like, I guarantee you, if the Heat lose game seven, there's going to be questions to about, like, you know, did the referee... Do you feel like the referees gave you a bad disadvantage? I guarantee you... Well, I don't know if I want to guarantee you because I don't know these people personally, and I can't say whether or not for sure that they would say this or that. But I can certainly, I can certainly say that most of these players would say, like, yeah, nothing to do with the refs. We just didn't play well because this is re- because let's be real, this is reality. Like, re- like bring it back down. Like take everybody, take off your tinfoil hats and stop being your conspiracy th- and stop being conspiracy theorists and understand that if the Celtics lose this series, it is more or not on the Heat. It is more or not on the fact that Jimmy Butler has not come up big in games five and six. It is more than not than hell. He had he didn't even have that good of a game in game four. He had twenty nine, sure, but he went nine of twenty one from the field. As I mentioned, Bam Adebayo hasn't he. Where has he been in games four, five, and six? You know, it's it's just like you, people want to make excuses and say this and that and try to create headlines They're like, oh, did the did the ref cost the Heat the series? Like, I guarantee you, if the Heat lose tonight, it will be their fault. I excuse me, I guarantee you that if the Heat lose tonight, it is their fault. It like, it, it, I mean, it, it does it suck that I mean, is it a big is it a big you know, thing like, is it a failure? That's the word I'm looking for. Is it a failure if the Heat, who are up 3-0 as an eighth seed, lose a series? Yeah, you're up 3-0. You only need one game. But I, I just don't feel like it's on the refs. Like, that's like there are so many instances in sports where the refs are scapegoats all the time. All the time. And... You know, some of those situations, you know, you could make it, you could make a, um, you could make a case specifically like, you know, Super Bowl, Super Bowl in 2005 between the Seahawks and the Steelers, uh, the 2002 Kings versus Lakers Western Conference Finals. You can make that case. Also, anything that has to do with Tim Donahue or whatever his name was, the NBA ref that was betting on games. You can make that case. But and certainly it doesn't look good that one of the referees involved in the Eastern Conference Finals is 
you know, being investigated by the NBA right now for possibly having a burner account trying to defend himself um, from the and his fellow refs from these bad calls. However, if again, if the Heat lose a series, it's not on the refs. It is on the Heat because they had chances in games four, five, six, and potentially seven to close the series, and they did not do so. And on top of that, the free throw disparities aren't even that bad. It like people talk about like, oh, the foul, the foul disparity is crazy. You know, the the Celtics are getting so many more free throws. The Heat are getting so many less free. The the three the free throw disparity in game in game six was like five. Celtics had like thirty four shots. Heat had like twenty nine. Something or maybe it's the or maybe it's the opposite. I don't know. But how? But like, how are you gonna say that, right? Like, are we just gonna continue to make excuses? Because that I'm trying to be realistic right now. I'm not one of those people that's consistently having their tinfoil hat on, trying to make a conspiracy theory and all that. I'm actually trying to be real because this is real life and not some fantasy world where every conspiracy the theory you can you construct is automatically correct because anything you say is right. No, I'm actually being real here. The Heat loses series. It's on the Heat. Nothing more, nothing less. And I want to end this by saying, if Eric Lewis is found guilty of like what he was doing, fire him. That type, the, like seriously, that type of behavior, it like hell. They did that to like yeah. To, what Tim Donahue did was a lot. I think was it Tim Donahue? I don't know. I don't know if you know. I know who I'm talking about. I just don't know if that's his name. But uh, I'm but I'm gonna keep saying it like I know it. But if Tim Donahue, you know, like what he did was a lot worse. But you know, this is at the same level. But this does not look good for Eric Lewis. Not at all. That that you were trying to defend you and your fellow referees online, that does not look good because it looks as if you have. It looks as if Mr. Lewis, you do not have thick skin. It looks like you have really soft skin. It, it, like, and why is that? Because you can't take the criticism, or because you actually are trying to rig the games in favor of the Celtics. I, I, I'm not going to say one or the other, but it's just, it, it's not looking good for him. It really, it really is not. My final topic before I go into my big one, which is MLB Power Rankings. I'm excited for that one. Uh, excuse me as I drink my water. Taught in this garage. Um, something that I have been waiting, that boxing fans have been waiting for for a long, long time. Terrence Crawford, Errol Spence Jr., the two best welterweight boxers in the world, will be set for a long-anticipated bout for undisputed welterweight gold July 29th in Las Vegas. I'm not going to lie, I wanted to go to this fight, and hell, like the, the plane tickets to pit, from Pittsburgh to Las Vegas were like $300. I'm like, I could make that money by that time. But God, but Lord, those tickets to that event were like $1,000. That's, I did not know boxing tickets were that much. I might have been, I might have been, uh, you know, not privy to, uh, I might have not been privy to how like expensive boxing tickets are. But good lord, you know, I would have loved to go. But regardless, you know, this is a great event. Talks of this super fight's been rampant for years on end, but due to contract issues, promoter problems, bad timing, fights been in and out of the works for years, but. 
However, however, Crawford and Spence have finally set the stage. The IBF, WBA, and WBC champ Errol Spence Jr. will take on WBO champ uh, Terrence Crawford to unify the title and settle the score. And it comes to wonder, you know, this being the first fight, you know, likely if they have another fight, if they split the series, we would likely have a trilogy bout. Whoever wins that trilogy, or if, you know, Crawford beats him twice, or Spence beats him twice, whoever wins that is likely going to take up on top junior <clears throat> top junior middleweight Jermaine, Jermel Charlo, the undisputed 155-pound champion. Uh, Spence was believed to have gone up to 154 this summer to fight Keith Thurman, but it was reported that both he and Terrence Crawford were hell-bent on fighting each other and making this fight possible. Spence, who is 28-0 with 22 knockouts, last fought in April of 2022, scoring a TKO over former WBA champ Jordanis Ugas. And Terrence Crawford, who is 39-0 and 30 knockouts. Crawford, regarded as one of the pound-for-pound best boxers in the world, as is Spence. But Crawford's highly regarded as the best boxer in the world, pound-for-pound. Pound. He last fought in December of 2022, knocking out David Avenician. Um, this could, this fight, dude, this fight continues a long list of boxing mega fights this year. It started with, uh, David Benavidez beating Caleb Plant, uh, Gervonta Davis beating Ryan Garcia, Katie Taylor beating, uh, Amanda Serrano in the rematch, Devin Haney defeating Lomach, uh, Vasily Lomachenko, and later on this year, uh, the one, the fight for i oh god i forget the weight class but the super fight for undisputed gold i believe between josh taylor and teofimo lopez and then another big fight between um pound for uh one, one pound for pound one of the best boxers in the world naoya in a way against stephen fulton jr and this is the stuff that we want to see in boxing man like two guys just putting it on the line best versus best that's all we want that's all we need and I, I want and like this whole year has just been full of it, you know. And the question is, will more be on the way? You know, there's been talks about Canelo Alvarez fighting David Benavidez, which I'm all for. But it looks like Canelo Alvarez will want a um, rematch with Dmitry Bivol. Um, and I wanted to push for Dmitry Bivol to fight Arthur Betterbeev, but that's likely not going to happen for a while because Bivol, because you know Canelo might go back up to fight Bivol. And then you've got the potential of Fury versus Usyk. However, it's been announced that Alexander Usyk, the um, one of the best, probably the best heavyweight in the world right now, is going to be fighting in August, not against Tyson Fury, but against Daniel Dubois. Maybe Tyson in. Uh, maybe I'm thinking right now that Tyson Fury wants that maybe a super fight against Francis Ngannou or something. I don't know, but I, that's that's one fight that I really want. However, you know, can't have them all, and I, it's 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 really 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 good to see that the two have finally agreed to fight and i'm really excited for this battle i think it's gonna be a banger not gonna make predictions um just yet because you know it's in july of 2020 uh, uh july 29th later this year but super 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 excited for this fight been a long time coming for these two guys and july 29th we're gonna really see who is the best welterweight in the world now moving on to my final uh, my final topic, I bring to you guys my mid-May power rankings of Major League Baseball. Starting off with starting off at the very bottom, the Oakland Athletics, who have a record of get ready ten and forty-five with a putrid four and twenty-two record in May. 
Like what? <laughs> okay. What else do you want me to say about the Oakland Athletics other than they're just trash? That's as nice as I'll put it. That they're just trash. Okay. Brent Rooker had a great April, and he's still hitting well with, you know, he's got 873 OPS and 11 home runs. And you got Ryan Nodas come out of nowhere. He's got a 400 on base percentage and an 851 OPS. One of the more intriguing players on this team has been Estri Ruiz, who hasn't been the best hitter, but he's logged 27 stolen bases so far in the early going. Right now, he's on pace for 70 to 80 on the year. I mean, I, I like, I'm not even going to talk about their pitching. It's been even worse than the offense. And when I say they've been worse than the offense, I mean they're fi- like the Oakland Athletics are a terrible offense, but they're not the worst in the league. I'll get to who the worst offense in the league is, but by far the worst pitching staff in the league is the Oakland, Ath- Oakland Athletics. They have a team ERA nearing seven. That's how bad they are, like pitching wise. Other than Rooker, who's been solid, he might get traded though. Um, and Noda's been good, and Ruiz has definitely been intriguing. You know, nobody's been able to challenge. No, look, ever since Ricky Henderson was tearing up base pass, nobody's really been ever able to ever challenge um, the potential of a 70-80 stolen base season. Ruiz might be that guy. Hell, Ronald Acuna might be that guy too, but we'll have to see where that holds. But yeah, other than Ruiz, who I really like, and Brent Rooker's been solid, like the athletics have just been terrible. And it's an absolute travesty, like, what they're going through right now, the absolute mess that they've created in Oakland, you know, doing that to the fans, like, putting that product out there in the fans and potentially their last season in Oakland. Just, it's just bad, man. It's just really bad. Coming in at number 29, I've got the Kansas City Royals who have been, you know, if it weren't for the Oakland Athletics being historically bad, they would easily be the worst team in baseball. They got a record of 16 to 38 and a 9 and 16 record in May. Uh, I mean, they're just not good. You know, the pitching has just been absurdly bad. With the offense, Salvador Perez, he's he's the lead guy, obviously. Right now, he's got 12 homers and 32 RBIs to go along with a 549 slugging percentage and an 876 OPS. Vinny Pasquantino, he's continuing to be, um, he's continuing to show the potential he's got to be a great first baseman. A lot of people compare him to Freddie Freeman, which is really, I, I mean, when I watch him, I see it. He's got a 23 to 29. He does, he walks a lot. He also doesn't strike out a lot to go along with 23 extra base hits and an 808 OPS. Bobby Wood Jr. He had a nice season last year, rookie season, but he's been okay. Eight doubles, four triples, nine home runs, 25 RBIs, 15 stolen bases. But he struggled with just 11 walks to 49 strikeouts and a 707 OPS. Now, he's been okay, not great. Uh, kind of, he, hell, he's he, he, you could say he's been below average at best. And, like, they've just been bad offensively. MJ Melendez has not looked like the top prospect that he was touted to be. Although Nick Prado has looked pretty good. And their outfield is an absolute mess. They have nothing out there. And hell, even Drew Waters, who was um, who was playing very well in the minors, like he 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 hasn't looked good either in the early going. Um, the pitching may just be even worse, to be honest with you. The starting rotation is easily one of the worst in the league. And the only intriguing pitcher on this roster has been, funny enough, Aroldis Chapman. If you guys remember, uh, Chapman had that weird falling out with the Yankees during the postseason last year. Um, and he signed with the Royals in the offseason, and he's done well so far. He's got he's 1-2, but he's got 2.9 ERA and 31 strikeouts in just 18 and, a, and two-thirds innings pitch. He's 
probably going to be traded for you know prospects at the trade deadline so don't expect much that's all <coughs> dang that water did not go down right <clears throat> dang sorry um <clears throat> moving on to number 28 the washington nationals who projected to be one of the worst teams in MLB. They've been, they've, they've been bad, but they've also been pretty solid. Hell, in May, they've got a solid 13-13 and 13 record. Uh, I, I mean, to be frank, despite the Nationals' solid play right now, I, I don't think they have the capacity to remain a potential sleeper team. Their best bat has been uh, Lane Thomas with an 815 OPS to go along with 18 extra base hits. <clears throat> but outside of that, like they're not very good offensively. Uh, their bullpen is not good either, but the best weapons have been two young pitchers, Josiah Gray and Mackenzie Gore. Gore is a strikeout machine. He's got an 11.1 strikeouts per nine to go along with a 3-3 three and three record and 3.88 ERA. Gray has been the most important player for Washington, though, as he's got a 4-5 and five record with a fantastic 2.77 ERA. Last year, he had an ERA nearing 5, and this year, he's he's looked really good. I mean, I, there's not really much else to say about the Washington Nationals. They're just bad. One thing that is looking really good for them right now, though, has been prospect James Wood. Um, down at, he, he's in, like, uh, um, single A or double A right now. He's been absolutely mashing the ball so far this season. And he looks to be a fantastic return piece for Juan Soto in that trade. But, you know, right now, the Nationals are just kind of bad. Moving on to number 27, I got the Chicago White Sox with a record of 22 and 33, 14 and 12 in May. You know, even despite a resurgent May, like, I just don't really have enough faith in the White Sox. It's just been a mess. Let's start with the positives right now. Jake Berger has been mashing baseballs. He's got a 591 slugging percentage to go along with an 893 OPS. Luis Robert has been solid as well. He's got 26 extra base hits, half of those being home runs. Yoan Mankata, Yasmani Goddal, and Andrew Vaughn have been solid. Not great, but they've been solid. Outside of that, they've just been bad. Like, Tim Anderson, you know, I'll be nice to him because I wouldn't want to anger uh, today's Jackie Robinson. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. If you didn't know, uh, Tim Anderson once... Um, Tim Anderson once called himself the uh, like the Jackie Robinson of today or something like that, and it caused like a weird thing between him and Josh Donaldson last season. Uh, I mean, I do like Tim Anderson. What I don't like is Tim Anderson's tor terrible play. He's literally been garbage. He's got like a 58 OPS plus. Uh, Andrew Bandittendi has struggled too. The Oscar Colas experiment has flopped tremendously. Their pitching, which by the way, their pitchers, the solid rotation of pitchers is nice, you know. Lance Lynn, Lucas Giolito, uh, Dylan Cease, Michael Kopech, and Mike Clevenger. You, you know, that's like, you know, that that's pretty good, you know. But all those guys have ERAs near or above four. Outside in their bullpen, outside of Gregory Santos and Keenan Middleton, you know, the other relievers are just not good. Their bullpen is bad. They had a really bad loss to uh, – um, they had a really bad loss to the Detroit Tigers last night, yesterday. It's just – it's been a really bad season for the Chicago White Sox. Moving on to 26, the Colorado Rockies with a record of 24 at 30, 15 and 10 in May. Uh, while the Rockies have had a great May, I, I just don't think their offense is consistent enough to maintain the level of play. Outside of Elias, D Elias Diaz, Elias Elias, I'm not sure what it was. 
but he's been fantastic. He's got a 338 batting average. This is like from yes. Most of these stats are from yesterday or um, even like I'm trying to think. Uh, most of these stats are from yesterday, even Saturday. So if they're off, I apologize. Um, but Diaz, he's batting 333 with a 907 OPS, 17 extra base hits, and Charlie Blackman's been good. The offense has not been good. Chris Bryant, CJ Crone, and one of their top prospects, Ezekiel Tavar, have really been bad. Surprisingly, their pitching, uh, particularly the bullpen, has been serviceable. Kyle Freeland's having a nice bounce back year, 4-5 and five with a 3.86 ERA. And in the pen, they got a lot of solid guys. Jake Bird, Justin Lawrence, Brad Hand, Chase Anderson, Daniel Barr. They've all been really good. Um, I just don't think that they have, with, with how bad the offense is and considering, you know, the, the Colorado Rockies, they play in Coors Field. With how bad they've been offensively, and they've been a lot better in May. Yes, I'll give them that. I just don't think they have the capacity and the performance to be able to, you know, potentially be a sleeper team. I think they're just going to fall off a cliff pretty soon. Moving on to number 25, the Chicago Cubs, 22-30 and 30, and a really bad May, 8-17. and 17. After an April, they look like a sleeper team, but, you know, the, the, that the, you know this may has looked really bad for them the offense is led by Seiya suzuki who had an incredible may batting 312 with a 997 ops alongside him is dansby swanson who's been solid and both ian happ and nico herner have been good and adding to that it's been christopher morell who's hit nine home runs in his first 12 games of the season after starting off the year in triple a however he failed to not he's failed to notch a home run in his past four games probably five i might be wrong the Cubs' biggest strength, though, comes from their starting three starters, Justin Steele, Marcus Stroman, and Drew Smiley. Steele had a great April, which culminated to a current 6-2, well, on my paper. The current might be different, but right now he's got a 6-2 record with a 2.77 ERA. Stroman has a quality start after quality start this season. He's one of the top pitchers in terms of quality starts. He's gone 4-4 four four with a 2.95 ERA, including in 8 including an eight-inning shutout against his former team, the Mets. And Drew Smiley has also found success, nearly pitching a perfect game against the Dodgers with a 5-1 and record and a 2.93 ERA. Uh, their bullpen really is not that good. Uh, Mark Leiter Jr. and Adbert Alzali have been okay, but you know, outside of that, their bullpen's not that good. Uh, and they also dropped a... I think they got swept against Cincinnati this past weekend. So, yeah, I, I really don't have... Um, faith in them speaking of cincinnati uh, i got them at number 24 the reds at right now 24 and 29 with a 12 and 13 record in may they've probably they've probably been a team who could be like the cubs to be sleepers but you know right now can they maintain the consistency tj friedel is having a hell of a season he's batting 326 with the 875 ops spencer steer and jonathan india have both oh, both have ops's over 800 and both guys also have 14 doubles each the rest of the team, you know, has struggled. However, particularly, it's been at catcher and shortstop. Tyler Stevenson hasn't been good, and Kirk Casale has been much worse. And as I said, shortstop's been an issue as Jose Barrero and Kevin Newman are just on cutting it. But hot hit, but hot prospect Matt McLean has played very well, um, batting 333 with six extra base hits and a 979 OPS in just in his first 11 games this season. He's been a very big um, get. He's been a very big boost to this Reds team in May. Starting pitching has been a mess. You know, Hunter Green, He's he may be turning a corner after he had a six-inning no-hit performance, 11 Ks against the Cubs. But Graham Ashcraft, Nick Lodolo, Luis Sessa have not been good. However, if the starters get a good performance, the Reds' bullpen 
can lock down those big innings. Led by star closer Alexis Diaz, who was Edwin Diaz's brother. He's got Alexis Diaz has 1.83 ERA, 11 saves, and 16.9 strikeouts per nine. They also have Buck Farmer, Alex Young, Derek Law, who got hurt unfortunately, and Ben Lively and Kevin Herjit. They they they've had they had a really big series against the Cubs where they swept the Cubs, and they could look to be uh if if they could keep this consistency, they could be a potential sleeper team. Who knows? Moving on to number 23, I've got the Cleveland Guardians, 23 and 29, 10 and 14 in May. And recently, I alluded to the Oakland Athletics having a bad offense, but not the worst. That's because the Cleveland Guardians have the worst offense in um, the, in MLB. The only good bat in the lineup has been J- Jose Ramirez. Most of the, and to be honest with you, most of their success has come through pitching. Like I can't even talk to you guys about like how bad their bats have been this season. It's been it's been horrible. It's been horrible. And the reason that they're still afloat right now is because of the pitching. Shane Bieber still pitching consistently well, and Ty, and young pitchers Tanner Bibby and Logan Allen have helped them with the rotation as Cal Quantrill's kind of struggle. Their bullpen's okay, not great. They've got solid pitchers in the pen like Eniel De Los Santos, Eli Morgan, Nick Sandlin, Xavier Curry, and Trevor Steffen. However, the two biggest names in the pen, the, that being James Karinchak and Emmanuel Classe, have been subpar, even bad. Both guys are one and four. Karinchak having a 4.57 ERA and Classe having a 3.6 ERA. Classe has led the league in saves, but Karinchak's just been overall just awful. He's been too wild. He's walked 16 batters in just 21.2 innings. It's just, it's really not good right now for the Cleveland Guardians. Yeah, last season they had a lot of promise to them with um, with how they performed in the playoffs, nearly beating the New York Yankees. But so far this season they've just been bad offensively, man. They've not been good. Hell, even J Ram isn't you know performing as most people expect them to. Moving on to number twenty twenty or t- not twenty twenty two. Excuse me. But moving on to number twenty two, I've got the St. Louis Cardinals who are 24-31 and have a 14-12 record in May. They had a really bad start to the season, but the Cardinals upped their offensive performance, going from around four runs a game in April to about six in May as of right now. The best hitter has been Nolan Gorman, who has 23 extra base hits, 13 of them home runs, along with 40 RBIs, a 282 batting average, 583 slugging, and 958 OPS. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt's following his MVP year with a solid campaign, notching 25 extra base hits and a slash line of 298 batting average, 398 on base, 505 slugging, 903 OPS. Paul DeYoung has been a good surprise, slugging 546 with an 886 OPS. Nolan Arenado got off to a poor start, but got better after a six home after a seven game stretch where he hit six home runs from May 12th to 18th. Both Tommy Edmond and Lars Newbar have been solid. However, the issue comes with Wilson Contreras, who struggled in his first season with the first season with the Cardinals. He's only batting 220 with a 674 OPS. Not the type of production you want to see when um, you know you're bringing the guy to replace Yadier Molina. So far, though, St. Louis's biggest issue has been their pitching, their starters specifically. Starters with 10 or more starts have a collective ERA of around four. Those guys being uh, Miles Michaelis, Jack Flaherty, uh, Jordan Montgomery, and Steven Matz. All those guys, you know, when you add up their innings pitch, their earned runs, they literally have an ERA of four, and that's just not good. However, 
their bullpen's still been good, and it's like we kept the Cardinals afloat for this long, pitching-wise. Um, Ryan Helsley's still been a good closer alongside Chris Stratton, Drew Verhagen, and Giovanni Gallegos. But with how the Cardinals have played this season, I really think that they can maybe turn a corner in the coming month or so, and they could really be a big uh, player. You know, They could probably be around to what they were thought to be um, it, it, by the All-Star break, maybe. Who knows? Moving on to number 21, I got the Detroit Tigers, who have looked very, very good so far in the month of May, going 15-9 and having a record right now of 25-26. They're very interesting, as the Tigers had little expectations after they flopped last season. Excuse me, but they've been surprising for sure, and they had a really good month of May. Their offense has been stagnant, but powered well by a great month by Bradley Green. Green bats, Green batted six three as I as I got right here. He had three. He batted three sixty four with twelve extra base hits, eleven RBIs with a nine ninety seven OPS. Utility man Zach McKinstry has also been solid, batting two ninety one with a four ten on base percentage, twenty three to twenty six walk to strikeout ratio, and eight eighty four eight fifty four OPS. Besides a uh, fantastic season from Eduardo Rodriguez, who's gone four and four with a two point one nine ERA, and Michael Lorenzen, who's gone two and two with a three point five ERA, the starting pitching has been a mess. Uh, but uh, as I said with the Cincinnati Reds, if you give them, if if the starters give them a good uh, outing, the bullpen can lock it down because surprisingly the Detroit Tigers have one of the best bullpens in baseball, led by closer Alex Lange, who's two and zero with a one point two seven ERA, nine saves, and twenty eight strikeouts. They also have Jason Foley, Jose Cisnero, Tyler Holton, and Will Vest. They've slowly been one of the, they they quietly, as I said, they've quietly been one of the best bullpens in the majors right now and their bullpen is a big reason for it coming in at number 20 i've got the philadelphia phillies at 25 and 28 10 to 14 in may for a team with massive world series expectations ignited further by trey turner's massive wbc performance we'll get to him the season seems to be on very shaky wheels for the phils bryce harper's return with great success and nick castellanos has played well but most of the other phils are sputtering offensively Kyle Schwarber is having a very Kyle Schwarber season, and by, by that, I mean he's batting 166. Well, I mean, I think he did hold a, hit a home run last night. Uh, he's bat, but as I've got right here, he's batting 166 with 13 home runs because, as I said, he had a home run last night. 38 walks, 64 strikeouts. Like That's that, that's pretty much uh, Kyle Schwarber in most seasons. Brent, uh, JT Real Muto has struggled as well. Brandon Marsh and Bryson Stott have fell off after great Aprils. But the worst of it has been Trey Turner, and his struggles have been very well documented. But just his struggles, not the reason for it. The reason why, the reason why, well, I have why he's struggling. Um, according to Baseball Savant, he's not been hitting fastballs and off-speeds to what he has in the past. Uh, in 2022, Trey Turner hit fastballs at a 323 clip and off-speed pitches at a 330 clip. This year... He's hitting just 227 against fastballs and even worse against off-speed pitches at 188. Hell, in 2023, he's hitting just 154 against four-seam fastballs. Why is this happening? I don't know. But he's hitting, but prior to, but one of the, I guess the only other thing that's kind of like big about this is he's hitting breaking pitches a lot better than he has in the past. But for him to be a very consistent fastball hitter and not be hitting fastballs this year, it's, it's, it's really weird, and I'm not sure what the deal with it is, but, uh, I mean, I don't know. Rotation has been a mess. Aaron Noel's been getting hit around. Tywin Walker hasn't been much better. 
Or, uh, did I say Taiwan or Tyron? Uh, Taiwan Walker. You guys get it. The bullpen's not been good either. Close it. Uh, star closer Jose Alvarado, who had a .63 ERA in 14.1 innings pitch, five saves and 24 strikeouts, got hurt. Well, although he could be back soon. But Craig Kimbrell, you know, shout out to him. He got his 400th save in his career. He's just been bad, though. I'm just gonna be. I'm just gonna be real. The lone bright spot in the bullpen outside of Alvarado has been Andrew Vasquez, who has a 1.21 ERA and 22.1 innings pitched. But, like, just... They've just not been good. They've just been really bad. And I, I, it's, it, like, not, most of their big guys, big names aren't coming up big. As they said, JT Real Muto struggling. Guys, just Kyle Schwarber and Trey Turner has been awful. So... Um, you know, will the return of Bryce Harper help them out? Time will have to tell, but as of right now, the Phillies are in a really bad spot to try and defend their National League crown. Moving on to number 19, I've got the uh, another NL East team in the Miami Marlins. 28-26, uh, and 26, a 12 and 13 record in May. Uh, with how lackluster the, Mar the Marlins have looked in the early going, it's kind of shocking that how solid they've been. After leaving Houston, Yuli Gurriel has quietly revived himself with a 120 OPS+, plus, albeit in a small sample size. Luisa Reyes has proven a big get for the Marlins, even with their need for power, as he leads all of MLB in batting average by a wide margin at 371. Jorge Soler is second in MLB with 17 home runs, leading to a 575 slugging percentage and 910 OPS. Brian De La Cruz has also been quietly really good for Miami with a 119 OPS+. Plus. Jesus Sanchez also looked good in just 29 games, after, but he got hurt. He also, uh, Sanchez had a 914 OPS and 551 slugging percentage. But as for the offense, Jazz Chisholm's, uh, you know, he's once again been struck down with an injury. And even before that, he, he, he wasn't really playing well. He's only got a 694 OPS. Gene Segura has been awful with a 38 OPS plus. And Nick Fortes and John Birdie also haven't helped either. They've just not been good. The starting pitching has been very up and down too. Rating NL Cy Young's Sandy Alcantara has gone just 2-5 and five in 10 starts with a 4.86 ERA. The best starter so far has been Jesus Lazardo, who's 4-3 with a 3.67 ERA. Edward Cabrera uh, has struggled as well. But maybe, and I, and, I would, and I said maybe here, but after last night's performance, it looks like Yuri Perez, top prospect, Pitching prospect for the Marlins looks like he's going to be a really big help for the Miami Marlins. He had a really good outing against the Angels last night, and the bullpen's been very consistent. Matt Barnes, Andrew Nardi, Tanner Scott, Dylan Floro, Huascar Brozabon, and AJ Puck—they've all been pretty good. Unfortunately, Puck went down with an injury, so that sucks for them. The Marlins honestly could be a lot higher than this, but I just don't think they have the consistency to maintain this level of baseball, you know, throughout the year. Uh, it's it's just their power issues. They just don't have a lot of power on that team outside of Jorge Soler. Moving on to number eighteen, I've got San Diego Padres with a record of twenty four and twenty nine and just nine and fifteen in May. The offense has still been really stagnant, particularly with Manny Machado, who's just been so bad. Jay Cronenworth hasn't helped matters also, and Trent Grisham, he's batted one eighty five, just not been good. Fernando Tatis Jr., you know, he's slowly getting back his groove. He's got a nine he's got nine home runs in thirty-two games with a one seventeen OPS plus. He had although the uh Yankees lost the series against the Padres, or, or the, the Yankees 
won the series against the Padres. Nando looked really good with two home runs in that series. Juan Soto's been a monster in May. Like he's probably the he's probably the player of the month for me in May. Batting 338 with a 45 on base clip, slugging 663 with a, a with OPS over a thousand at 1.148. Got 11 doubles, five homers, 13 RBIs, and has walked 23 times to just 18 strikeouts. He's been a monster. The best starter for San Diego so far has been Michael Waka, who's logged a 3-0 record in five starts with a .84 ERA. Um, in May, this is in May, by the way, 3-0 record, .84 ERA, opponents only batting 147 against him. Yu Darvish has been, well, I, I did say Yu Darvish has been solid, but he got knocked around for seven runs yesterday. Blake Snell and Joe Musgrove have been bad at best. Um, but the bullpen, uh, particularly Josh Hader, Josh Hader has really reestablished himself as one of the best closers in the game. But as I said, the rest of the bullpen has struggled to find consistency. And it's looking really, you know, if Manny Machado doesn't pick it up, uh, like this could look like a really bleak season for the San Diego Padres. And heck, it's not even just Manny Machado. It's just the, it's just the starters. The starters have been awful. Moving on to number 17, I've got the Toronto Blue Jays, who have a record of 28-26. and 26. And a record of 10 and 16 in May. The Blue Jays have just had an absolute turbulent month, going on mass losing streaks throughout May. Matt Chapman has fallen off a cliff since his insane April, while Vlad Jr. has also struggled. However, Bo Bichette has looked really good. Um, he's looking like one of the best shortstops in baseball. 23 extra base hits, 37 RBIs, batting 335. I think that's good for second in the league right now. And 537 slugging with a 911 OPS. Kevin Kiermeyer surprisingly been one of the Rays or the Jays' biggest offensive contributors, hitting 319 with a 511 slugging and 877 OPS, still being a great defender. However, big names such as Alejandro Kirk, George Springer, and Dalton Marshall have not been good for the Jays. And what's really got me, um, really has me um, confused right now and kind of worried is the performance of Alec Manoa after a Cy Young caliber season last year. He's been an absolute mess, going just 1-5 with a 5.53 ERA. Kevin Gossman and Chris Bassett have been the only solid starters. The bullpen's not that good either, and outside of Tim Mesa, the pit, you know, the pitching is just not good for the Blue Jays, and it looks like it could be another mess of a season for the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, it, it, could, it could end up just as it was last year, you know. Uh, Charlie Montoyo really struggled to gain traction. Got fired midseason, and then John Schneider came in, and he led the team to a crazy uh, latter half of the season, taking them to the playoffs. Now Schneider's really having struggles right now. So we'll see what happens with the Blue Jays as a whole. Moving on to 16, I have the Pittsburgh Pirates at 26-26 and 26 with an abysmal record of 6-17 and 17 in May. An impressive and shocking April gave way to a really bad May, but, you know, the fact that the uh, Bucks, the Buckos are alive this long is shocking of itself. Andrew McCutcheon's injected life into this team, coming back to the team. He wants dominated with Kutch right now, uh, or on my um, or on my uh, script as of right now, batting 269 with an 826 OPS. Along with him, uh, like along with him, the outfield has been fantastic. Brian Reynolds came alive in a big contract year with 25 extra base hits. Jack Sawinski's been slugging at a 49 clip along with 24 walks. Connor Joe's been surprising um, 
Uh, and uh, he's got 18 extra base hits and an 832 OPS. One of the more surprising players has been second baseman Rodolfo Castro. He's slashing 263 with a 366 on base percentage and an 804 OPS, slugging 439. The pitching has fallen off, but Mitch Keller's been really good. Um, he, I think he's one of the top five guys in strikeouts this year. Rich Hill at 43 years old has been really good. The Pirates also have a strong bullpen with Johan Ramirez, Jose Hernandez, Colin Holderman, Dari Moretta, and top closer David Bednar. While the Pirates did have a great May or April, I did say that they were going to fall off a cliff, and they definitely have. You know, it look it's really looking like this coming trade deadline is going to be a trade deadline where they might ship off David Bednar, they might ship off uh, Mitch Keller. It's it's not been a good month of May, so. We'll see what happens in the latter half of the year, but right now it's looking very bleak for the Buccos. Moving on to number 15 to make it a less uh, second change. I got the New York Mets, 27 to 27 and 12 and 15 in May. A bad April gave way to uh, kind of a better May, but they're still not where they were expected to be. Outside of Pete Blonzo, who's mashing baseballs, I think he's got 20 right now. Uh, Brandon Minnow's trying to prove his contract is worth it. Certainly was. He's having a solid season. And a young budding catcher in Francisco Alvarez, who's looked great. Their offense has not been what it was or what it was sought to be. Justin Verlander's been up and down, but he started to gain traction after a good performance against Cleveland. Max Scherzer got suspended after being caught with sticky stuff. Kodai Senga's been solid coming from Japan. But the bullpen has been solid despite the loss of Edwin Diaz. You know, David Robinson's filled well at closer and adds to that Drew Smith, Brooks Raley, and Jeff Brigham. Their issue is just offense. Like, they're, they're not producing anything. Francisco Lindor, bad. Mark Canna, bad. Starling Marte, lord. Let's not even talk about it. Francisco, Al it's, it's, it is nice that Francisco Alvarez is looking like a very good prospect. I mean, he was one of the top five prospects in baseball for a reason. He looks great. But, you know, him, Alonzo, and Nemo, they can't carry the load by themselves. And it's just looking like a really bleak season for the Mets right now. Uh, and as I said, it's a bit of a switch because I originally had the Mets at 14, but I'm moving the Seattle Mariners up a spot to number 14. They have a record of 28 and 25 in May, and 16, or not, well, they have an overall record of 28 and 25, but a 16 and 9 record in May. Many key bats have gone silent, you know, outside of Ty France, J.P. Crawford, Cal Raleigh, and Jared Kelnick, who's had a resurgence. J-Rod has not looked like his old self. Hell, he's still struggling right now. He's only hitting, like, 238 as I'm reading this. Teoscar Hernandez has been really bad. I don't know what that was behind me. Uh, and Eugenio Suarez, well, I, 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 was, I did say here that Eugenio Suarez looked equally as bad that he hit a walk-off home run last night. Uh, but A.J. Pollock, he's still not hitting well right now. Uh, and Colton Wong's probably one of the worst offensive players in the league. Like, he's just so bad. How, excuse me. However, uh, the Seattle Mariners may have found a new second baseman uh, to, to finally stop uh, the pain of Colton Wong with Jose Caballero. He's slashing 277 with a 395 on-base percentage. Slugging just 415, but he got an 810 OPS in 27 games. Five extra base hits, six stolen bases, and 11 walks. He's been pretty solid so far. The rotation's been great. Luis Castillo's proved his pedigree of this extension, while George, Kirby, George Kirby and Logan Gilbert have had good seasons. The most shocking has been top prospect Bryce Miller, who's gone 3-1 and in five starts with a 1.15 ERA and 31 and a third innings pitch. 
Bullpen, still one of the best in baseball with closer Paul Sewell, backed by Trevor Gott, Justin Topa, Gabe Spire, and Taylor Taylor Sacedo. Add to that the return, the coming returns of injured relievers Penn Murphy and Andres Munoz. Seattle can get a major pitching boost, and they've looked really, they've looked a lot better this May than they did in April. And they could, hell, they could, they could put themselves back up into that upper echelon of teams. Moving on to number thirteen, I've got the San Francisco Giants at twenty-seven to twenty-six, sixteen and ten in May. There's really no rhyme or reason to the May to their May resurgence. It's just the whole team's playing really good baseball. It also just goes to show how good and solid of a manager Gabe Kapler is. You know, working with what he's got to you know lead the Giants to a solid to a solid start. Lamont Wade Jr. has been an on-base machine. Has walked 34 times to just 36 strikeouts. Tyra Estrada had a good April, but he did slow down. He's still playing well, though. And Michael Conforto has been good after a year off with an 8-11 OPS this season. Pitching, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Pitching's been led by Logan Webb, who after going 0-4, uh, followed it up with six straight quality starts. He now has a 2.91 ERA. Alex Cobb's been a shock to many. He's got on 4-1 on the year in 10 games started with a 2.17 ERA. Camilo Duvall has been a great closer with a 1.99 ERA in 13 saves in 2023. I can't really get a gauge on the San Francisco Giants right now. They like, yeah, they're playing great baseball, but as a whole, like, you know, can they maintain this? I think it's just it's it's all on Gabe. It, well, not all on Gabe Kapler, but a good majority of it is because it's really showing how good of a manager he is that the Giants were able to have this good resurgence, and you know, with what they've had, what they came into the season with. Even with Mitch Hanniger playing bad and then not getting uh, Arson, excuse me, Aaron Judge um, and Carlos Correa, they still played well. And, you know, maybe they could be a sleeper team. Who knows? Moving on to number 12, we got the Boston Red Sox, who are 28 and 25, 13 11 in May. The offense has been great, uh, particularly po- powered by the outfield. Mas Takayoshi then left. Jaron Duran in center, and Alex Verdugo in right. Additionally, there's Adam Duvall, who was hurt after a crazy start to the season. Devers has been hitting hard, but he's struggling to get on base at just a 297 on base percentage. Tristan Casas hasn't yet caught his stride, but Connor Wong seems to have taken over the started catching role. Uh, you know, splitting time between, in, you know, he's still splitting time between Reese McGuire, but we'll see how that goes. Chris Sale had a bad start, but he's been on fire in his last five starts. Going 4-0 with a 2.23 ERA, 35 strikeouts, and, a, and an opponent batting average of 172. The other starters have just been bad. Like, um, Corey Kluber got moved to the bullpen. Nick Pavetta got moved to the bullpen. Uh, and the bullpen's just been a mixed bag. Like, it's just it's up and down. The key to the Red Sox season is going to come through the offense. The pitching just has to survive. That's all it is. It could, the Bru- the, not, not the, I'm looking at the Bruins flag, which is why I said Bruins. But the Red Sox... They just have to, the the offense just has to keep clicking. You know, maybe Duvall can come back and give the team a boost. But as of right now, they really need they the, the pitching just needs to survive. That's all it needs to do. Moving on to number eleven, I've got the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, they have a record of 13 and twelve in May. Obviously, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani of the stars, while Hunter Renfro's been solid. The key or the story about these Angels have been the young guys coming up big. Logan Ohapi, prior to him getting injured, and he's probably going to be out for the year, Ohapi was incredible. He looked like a surefire, if he could see that play, Ohapi looked like a surefire contender 
for um for the for AL Rookie of the Year. Zach Nito had a bad start, but he's coming into his own. I recently called up Mickey Moniak's been hitting, but has been in the hell out of the baseball. Shohei's still been good as a starter. Patrick Sandoval's been solid, but outside of that, their rotation is not really that good. It's it's just kind of mad to bad. The Angels' bullpen's been one of the better pens in the league, surprisingly, backed by converted starter Matt Moore and a resurgent closer in Carlos Estevez. Estevez is actually one of the – he might be a coveted closer in the trade deadline. You know, if, Maybe if the Angels feel like they could compete, maybe they trade him. Maybe they don't trade him. But if they don't feel like they compete, maybe they do trade them. But who am I kidding? This is the Angels. We never know what they're going to do. Who knows? Uh, but I, I just don't know if the Angels have enough – to, well, I do want to mention that Matt Theis, uh, after Ohapi went down with the injury, has been pretty good. But, like, it, it's just the – like, my main issue with the Angels has been their starting pitching. Because, as I said, outside of Shohei Otani and Patrick Sandoval, they've really not been that good starting-wise. Moving on to number 10, I've got the Milwaukee Brewers at 20 and 25, 10-15 and in May. Their offense has sputtered outside of Rowdy Telez, Christian Yelich, Brian Anderson, and a surprise in Owen Miller. Most of their big guys just haven't come up big. Uh, Willie Adamas struggled. Bryce Trang, one of their uh, top prospects, hasn't played well. Tyrone Taylor's been bad. William Contreras has struggled to catch his stride. Jesse Winker's been awful. It, it's it, it's it, like their offense is a mess right now. It really is. And hell, even their pitching really isn't that much better. Corbin Burns, he's not pitched to what he's shown in the past years. Wade Miley and Brandon Woodruff will be out for a while. But although Devin Williams is having an incredible year, he's got a 0.59 ERA. If the Brewers continue to play like this, it, it won't be long before the Cardinals eventually catch them. Um in the standings it, it, like they've just not playing well the offense has been stagnant the starting pitching's been really not that good and hampered by injuries it's looking kind of bleak for the brew crew right now number nine i got the arizona diamond back arizona diamond backs it's hot in here man it's hot in this garage uh they have a record of 30-23, in May. One of the more surprising teams in baseball this year with everything clicking at the right moment. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. has been a massive pickup. There's a dog parking outside. Along with Gabriel Moreno after uh, they traded Dalton Varsha. I definitely think it was a huge trade, a huge win for the Diamondbacks. As Gurriel has 24 extra base hits, doesn't strike out a lot, and has a 930 OPS. Gabe Moreno is hitting above 300. Uh, one of the more surprising players this season has been Geraldo Perdomo. Um, he, he whiffs out a lot of pitches. He's only struck out 27, 23 times to his 17 walks. He's slashing 312 with a 414 on base, 514 slugging, 928 OPS. He just gets a lot of hits. He doesn't barrel the ball much, but he just gets hits. There's also been a slight uptick in his exavilo on pitches from 2022 to this year. He's been really surprising. He's been a really big player for the Diamondbacks in the ladder of their lineup. Outside of that, Cattell Marte had a subpar April, but has got Ben Etter in May. Christian Walker's still slugging the ball hard while playing fantastic defense. Corbin Carroll's been fantastic. 
Uh, the pitching's been powered by the two-headed monster of Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly. Outside of that, the starters have struggled. They actually called up top prospect Brandon Fodd, and he's not been good uh, since being called up. The bullpen's been terrific, though. Andrew Chafin's been a great closer. He's backed up by great uh, other great relievers in Miguel Castro, Kyle Nelson, Scott Magoo, and Kevin Ginkle. I really like the Diamondbacks. I think they're one of the more underrated teams in baseball right now. And I think they could keep up this level of play for a while. I really like the young stars. Um, maybe Alec Thomas, you know, you hope to see him kind of resurge. But I think the Diamondbacks can do enough and have the capabilities. Maybe if they got another starter in the trade deadline in August or something, they could be a really sneaky team and could potentially get back to the playoffs. Moving on to number eight, I've got the Minnesota Twins. I can't really gauge uh, on them, to be honest. And I'll get to it. Record of 27-26, to 10-14 in May. This is the team, like, when you look at their run differential, which is plus 43, well, as I got right now, it's probably different. They should be much better than what they stand at. Their offense was empowered mostly by Baron Buxton, and the other bats have just gone and the other bats have just gone quiet. Besides a surprise renaissance of Joey Gallo, many of the big hitters are injured. Um, Jose Miranda, Jorge Polanco, Trevor Larnag, Max Kepler, Nick Gordon all hurt, and Carlos Correa has not had a good season thus far. The starting pitching's been excellent though. Excuse me, backed by Joe Ryan, who's been an incredibly great pitcher. Sonny Gray's been one of the best in baseball, a sub-2 ERA, and Pablo Lopez has also been solid. Uh, and they also have a really good closer in Yohan Duran, along with other good bullpen arms. You know, you wonder if the Twins are going to catch fire at some point and play to what they could be. But as of right now, they just they don't look, they don't look really good. It's like they're they're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. It's really weird what's going on with the Twins right now. Moving on to number seven, I got the Houston Astros. After a bad start in April, they have gone 16-8 and eight in May, good enough for a record of 31-21. and 21. Jordan Alvarez has been great, and Jose Altuve's return has seemed to inject life into a sputtering offense. But most of their bigger names, such as Jose Abreu, Alex Bregman, and Jer Jeremy Pena, have not hit well. Abreu recently hit his first home run as an Astro, so maybe that you know kickstarts his season, but we'll have to see. Many big hitters can are still uh, are in. Uh, excuse me, I'm looking at the wrong one. But what's really been good for the Houston Astros as of right now has been their pitching. Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, and rookie Hunter Brown have been fantastic, along with a really good bullpen and Ryan Presley, Brian Abreu, Phil Maton, and Hector Neris. That is for sure their strong point, and it's what's kept them afloat for so long. Um, and not only that, a resurgent offense behind Jose Altuve's return. Uh, Mauricio Dubon did play well in his absence, but the team really—it seemed like the team really was missing that presence of Altuve. He can't, and he's come back and he's played extremely well uh, so far in the, since his return. Moving on to the number six spot, I've got the Baltimore Orioles, 35 and 19, 15 and 10 in May. The offense has been super impressive. Uh, Adley Rutschman's been the catalyst of all. Oh, he's got 10 more walks than he does strikeouts, 41 to 31 ratio, along with 15 extra base hits. Cedric Mullins could certainly be a candidate for a possible 33 season. He's got eight home runs right now, 13 stolen bases. The left side of the infield, however, has been interesting. After a great April, Jorge Mateo has fallen really bad, and Gunnar Henderson has not been good so far. He's only batting 204, as I've got on here, and 13 extra base hits. 
The starters have struggled, such as Grayson Rodriguez, who was sent back down to AAA. Keegan Aiken was called up. But their bullpen has been great. The two of the best, uh, the two of their best relievers being Felix Bautista, who I continually say is one of the best relievers in baseball, got or closes in baseball with a blistering fastball and nasty splitter, and Yenier Cano, who's still continuing his incredible April with a really good May. The the Orioles look really good so far, and I really like um, what I've been seeing from these guys so far. I think they're a really fun team, and I think at some point they're really going to catch their stride. I think you know you wonder if Gunnar Henderson is going to um, you you wonder if Gunnar Henderson is going to catch fire at some point, but we'll see. We'll we'll have to see. What I'm really worried about is their starting pitching. As I said, that it's not really that good outside of Kyle Gibson, who's had a solid season, and Grayson Rodriguez, their top pitching prospect, had got sent down to AAA after a bad start. So that's what's really going to be the top, the big topic for of the Orioles. Moving on to number five, I've got the New York Yankees, 32 and 23, with a 17 and 9 record of May. Injuries have marred the Yanks in the early going, as Giancarlo Stanton, Oswald Peraza, or wait, no, it's Oswald Peraza. I, it's Oswaldo Cabrera. I, that always gets me. I don't know why. Um, uh, Jose Trevino, Josh Donaldson, and Jonathan Luizaga having gone down with injuries. Judge was injured for a bit, but came back from injury in May with eight home runs. He actually hit a home run, I think, yesterday. Um, 19 RBI, 16 walks. Rizzo's been great. Torres, Torres has been good. But outside of those three, the offense has been flat. Uh, Anthony Volpe's continued to struggle. LeMahieu's inconsistent. And Oswaldo Cabrera, got that right, has been awful. And as I said, catcher, like I said, Jose Trevino's injured, but he's not been hitting well. And Kyle Higashioka's just, you know, Higashioka is kind of just there for Garrett Cole, to be honest. And like, but you know, offensively, he's just a liability to like to just be frank. The pitching has been carried so far by Garrett Cole, who is uh, I think he's six and zero now, uh, and he had two point five three ERA, but he did get hit around for like three or five three to five runs, uh, I think three runs, maybe five against the Padres yesterday. Uh, he's at two. Wait, no, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong one again. God, uh, Nestor Cortez and Clark Schmidt have not been good, but. Um, the inevitable returns of Carlos Rodon and Luis Severino should surely help the team. The bullpen has been the backbone of the pitching so far. Clay Holmes had a bad start, but he's reviving nicely. And they've also got a lot of good uh, player, other good relievers in Albert Abreu, Wandy Peralta, Jimmy Cordero, Ron Maranacchio, and Michael King in that pen. The Yankees are surging right now. They just recently took the series against the San Diego Padres, and I think they're going to be a very, very interesting team to watch. You know, eventually when Stanton comes back, and it's going to be very interesting to see what goes down with the New York Yankees. <clears throat> Moving on to the number four spot, I've got the Atlanta Braves. Open another water bottle. Sorry. They have a record of thirty-two and twenty-one and fourteen and twelve in May. They've kind of been struggling, but they they've got the third best offense in MLB, fifth best pitching staff in terms of ERA. Ronald Acuna Jr. right now is making a lot of um, headlines for being a possible MVP candidate. And he was, he said 26 extra base hits, 27 RBIs, 22 stolen base. Those numbers have only, only gone up since his performance last night on ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. He went 4 or 5 with a triple um, and I think a couple stolen bases. He's been so good this season. 
former Oakland A's Sean Murphy and Matt Olson to rub more salt in the wound of Oakland A's fans, if there's any out there, have been slugging the baseballs. Combined between, the, well, as of right now, because Olsen hit two home runs last night, they got 26 RBI, 26 home runs, and Ozzy Albies has been solid too. Michael Harris at two. My, oh, God, I'm really getting tired now. This heat's getting to me. But Michael Harris in second, he's just been bad, man. He's not been good. Uh, Marcelo Zuna, though, has gotten a lot better. He was one of the worst hitters on the team, but he's gotten better this April, or, yeah, this May, with a 523 slugging and 850 OPS. Starters have been great as Bryce Elder has been a massive surprise for ATL. A 3-0 record in 10 games started with a 2.01 ERA and 2.3 war. Uh, Spencer Strider, Charlie Morton, Max Free pitching well too. And on top of that, Mike Soroka making his first start since 2020 um, for the Atlanta Braves after two Achilles injuries. Congrats to you. I know he's definitely not going to be listening to this, but... I do want to give my congrats to Mike Soroka. That's an incredible accomplishment, and I wish all the best for you. Uh, the issue with the, the – the, while the starters have been great, however, for the Braves, their issues come with the bullpen. A.J. Minter is not really good as a closer right now. He's 2-5 and five with a record – it's 2-5 and five with a 7.43 ERA. That's not something at all you want out of your closer. And overall, their bullpen has not been that good, and that really worries me, you know – but we'll see what happens. But I think that I still believe that the Atlanta Braves are the front runners for the World Series. I think they have the bats to be able to compete. And I think their starting pitching is definitely good enough with how they're pitching right now um, to be able to lock down offenses. Their issue for me comes with the pit, with the bullpen. That's all. Moving on to the number three spot, I've got the Los Angeles Dodgers, 32 and 22, 16 and nine in May. They struggled to find a groove in April, but the team has found success in May. They've got the fourth best offense, led by Freddie Freeman, who is who at well right now on my pay, on my script, 28 extra base hits, 329 batting average, 959 OPS. Max Muncy's falling back down. He's black, but he had a great May. He was just hitting the hell out of baseballs, but he's now batting below 200. Miguel Vargas has slowly gotten better too, which is very, very good for. Was a very good sign for the Dodgers. James Outman's still solid, but he's not as good as he was in April. But I think he's going to be good. Mookie Betts has returned. He's been great. 26 extra base hits. And his fellow Red Sox teammate, J.D. Martinez, has been a surprise too. 23 extra base hits, 573 slugging, 888 OPS. Dodgers have had a slew of pitching injuries, such as Julio Arias and Dustin May. Top prospects Gavin Stone and Bobby Miller were called up with Ryan Pepio. He's likely to soon to be followed. Uh, Gavin Stone has had a bad, bad start. With two, three games started now, giving up uh, more than nine. He's given up, I think, 16 runs in 10 innings. It's just not been a good start for Gavin Stone. But Bobby Miller looked really good in his debut against the Braves, pitching five innings of one-run ball against Atlanta. Uh, I, I really like where the Dodgers are at right now. I think they're getting a lot of good um, production from the young guys. That's really big for them. And Mookie Betts, you know, J.D. Martinez is a very big surprise, but I think the Dodgers... So far, I, I still think the Braves are the are the front runners for the World Series, but the Dodgers are are certainly up there. <clears throat> My issue with them, like you know, in the in the future playoffs, is 
you know, A, if they get there, which they probably will, you know, but, you know, how does Dave Roberts screw this up if he screws it up? Because if there's one thing about the Dodgers in the playoffs is Dave Roberts is going to do something to screw it up. But right now, they're playing really good baseball. One team that's been playing very good baseball is very surprising is the Texas Rangers with a record of 33-19, and 16-8 in May. A whole array of offensive weapons as they have the second best offense in the league. Sixth best collective ERA in the league at 3.74 and they walk very few batters. The uh, With the offense, it's just it's loaded. Nathaniel Lowe, Marcus Simeon, Josh Young, uh, Adolis Garcia. Garcia is leading the league in RBIs right now. Leodic Tavares and Jonah Heim. Corey Seager, um, was, he was mashing the ball prior to his injury. And hell, even Ezekiel Duran played well in his absence. He was batting 301, slugging 515 <clears throat> with an OPS at 855 and 15 extra base hits. The most impressive has been their pitching as, without Jacob deGrom, starters have led the way with Nathan Navaldi, who's been dominant this season. 6-2 with a 2.6 ERA alongside John Gray, Martin Perez, and Andrew Heaney. The bullpen's been shaky, but Will Smith has been solid as a closer, and Dane Dunning adds a mix of stability to the bullpen. <coughs> I need a drink. I'm running out of steam. But yeah, as a whole, I really like the Los. I really like the Texas Rangers right now. I think they're definitely primed for a playoff position. If Jacob Degrom can come back from injury and continue to pitch well and stay healthy, I think the Texas Rangers definitely have a shot of going to the World Series. Bruce Bochy, you know, people question, you know, can he come back and can he? <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I'm sorry for sorry about that. I coughed right into the mic. People question if he can come back, if he can uh, manage the team well, but he has, certainly. He's led the team to the uh, second, well, one of the best records in MLB, and he, they've had a fantastic month of May so far. And number one, no shock here, Tampa Bay Rays with a record of 39-16, 16-10 in May. Definitely a lot worse than they were in um, in April, but still insane. They've got the best offense in the league by far, the 271 collective batting average, and a collective OPS, as, as I have on my script, uh, 848. League-leading 66 stolen bases and also league-leading in home runs at over 100. They got the fourth-ranked pitching squad with a 3.67 team ERA, second-lowest opposing batting average in the league at 229. Randy Orozarena has been fantastic. 19 extra base hits, 39 RBIs, 947 OPS. Josh Lowe has really come out as a as a absolute slugger, slugging 621 with 23 extra base hits. He's also fast too. He's got 10 stolen bases. Yandy Diaz, but he's probably been the most impressive. <clears throat> excuse me, he's probably been the most impressive uh, bat so far with a 2.41 WAR, 12 home runs, 11 doubles, on base, for, uh, getting on base at a 435 clip with a 1.07 OPS. The pitching has also been incredibly good, led by, <clears throat> excuse me, led by starter Shane McClanahan, who's got an 8-0 with a 1.97 ERA, striking out 75 batters, and and signing the guy that signed this year, Zach Eflin, 7-1 with a 3.17 ERA, a 1.019 WHIP, and seven only just seven walks. The bullpen's still holding strong. You want to talk about? Excuse me. You want to talk about the most complete team in the MLB, look no further than the Tampa Bay Rays. They've been absolutely insane so far in the latter half, in the early part of this season. <clears throat> Even a, damn, I really cough right into the mic, I'm sorry. Even in a season 
where even in a month of May where they were much worse record-wise than they were in April. They, they're still one of the best teams in the league in May. They, their offense is just so loaded. Everybody's batting well. Even I didn't even mention him, but a guy like Christian Bethencourt, who's not known for offensive prowess, he's he's batting well. You know your team is doing well. And then you've got the pitching staff who's still loaded and makes the best out of uh, smaller players. The bullpens, it, it does really suck as they lost uh, Jeffrey Springs for the year and they lost Drew Rasmussen for a while. But with how they've been playing, man, like I, I, I don't see any issue as uh, – I really don't see an issue – to the Tampa Bay Rays right now. I think they continue to march on and be probably the number one seed in the um, in the AL. But we'll have to see how it all goes out. Maybe they have, maybe they strike a bad spot. But with how they're playing right now and how they've just dominated series after series after series, it looks like nobody might stop the Tampa Bay Rays. <clears throat> all right, and that'll end episode six of the CBiz Show. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, tuning into this episode, uh, it, I kind of did struggle a little bit towards the end because I'm in my garage and it's hot as hell in here. I apologize, you know, for me coughing a lot, taking water breaks. I really, uh, it really is kind of stuffy in here. Um, but I wanted to try something new. Wanted to try something where I could limit some noise. And in terms of noise limiting, it did help. Uh, but yeah, uh, <clears throat> that's gonna be all for today. And with that being said, this is. Colin Bish signing off of the CBIS show. See you all for episode seven.